This coverage of Legal Week brought to you by Legal Talk Network, with many great podcasts to make your next commute or workout informative and educational. To improve your practice and stay in the know, visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to On the Road with Legal Talk Network. I'm Ralph Baxter, and I'll be co-hosting this podcast with Lawrence Coletti, and it's a pleasure to, to be with you. We're in New York today at Legal Week 2020, and we have with us uh, the participants in a panel that was conducted here at Legal Week called The Path Less Followed, The Rise of Non-Traditional Legal Careers. We have the entire panel. The moderator, Rose Walker, who's a news editor at Legal Week at ALM Media, and then David Latt, Managing Director at Lateral Link and co-founder of Above the Law. Zach Abramowitz, who is co-founder and CEO of ReplyAll.me and also a, a columnist at Above the Law. And Chris Wilson, a partner at Taylor English Duma and head of the firm's remote platform. So, Rose, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of uh, the panel, what, what it discussed and perhaps a highlight? Sure, Ralph. So we had a really great panel. Um, we had three very original career paths from these guys. They all started off in the sort of traditional, you know, trained to be lawyers, um, worked in private and in-house practice for a little bit. And they've all gone on to take really different directions. Uh, so we heard about how their traditional starts have sort of benefited them, what made them want to sort of take the non-traditional route after that. We shared tips, we heard personal stories in terms of how they'd flourished in their new careers and took away some really good insights into how anyone considering a career move into a different area of law, such as a, you know, a grad or actually someone a lot more mature, uh, some tips for them in terms of what they can do to really bolster their skill set. It really sounds great. So let's hear from directly from these three reformed uh, lawyers. Now, start with David. David Latt. David, can you uh, tell us your story about leaving the traditional legal career? Yeah, sure. So, uh, after law school, I clerked for a year. I worked at Wachtell Lipton in New York for a few years, and then I worked as a federal prosecutor in New Jersey, where I grew up. And it was while doing that that I adopted a, a interesting hobby. I started blogging. Uh, this was in 2004 about federal judges. I started a site called Underneath Their Robes: News, Gossip, and Colorful Commentary about the Federal Judiciary. This was essentially a gossip blog, like a People magazine or a TMZ, but for federal judges. I did this anonymously for a time. Eventually, I revealed myself. I did not stay long in the U.S. Attorney's Office. After that, I uh, briefly worked for a political blog, and then in summer of 2006, I launched the uh, site Above Law, which uh, focuses on the legal profession. What an interesting story, and one, and the results of which is very well known to every lawyer, at least in the United States. Zach, tell us your story. Like David, I started off at a big law firm at Schulte, Roth, and Zabel in their M&A group. While I was there and actually very much reading above the law, dreamed for something more. And I, I used to have a series of exchanges, mostly by email with a good friend of mine. We would discuss everything under the sun from sports to politics. One day I said to him, wouldn't it be great if we could take these conversations that we've mostly been having by email and publish them in front of an audience? We would be the only two having the conversation, but everyone else could follow along as it developed like a fly on the wall. And he said to me, yeah, wouldn't it be better if like, actually interesting people could have those conversations and we could follow them? So we built a tool 
that any website could use to publish a live developing conversation on their site. What led me sort of into the, back into the legal verticals that one of the first big sites we worked with was Above the Law. And I actually began writing or reply-alling for them, interviewing first celebrities like Mark Cuban and John Grisham, but ultimately getting into a place where we started creating conversations mostly about disruption that was happening in legal. And actually at that time, David really encouraged me, despite the traffic probably not being as great as it was on a Mark Cuban interview, but said, listen, no, keep up these conversations about legal technology and disruption. We think this is going to be very big. And I, I did. I saw the, the traffic on these conversations really explode over the course of the next couple of years. And in 2018, we realized that we wanted to get even further deep into the legal vertical. So I spun out a consulting company called Killer Whale Strategies, which began partnering with law firms on the development of technology and began in particular with my work with, uh, with Gravity Stack, the technology subsidiary of Reed Smith, who's been developing their own products that they actually license out to other law departments, law firms, and ALSPs. Really interesting. So Chris, you're still in law. Tell us your story. Sure. So like the other two, I started out in a traditional big law. I spent seven years with Troutman Sanders. After that, much like many corporate attorneys, I went in-house for a couple of years. I had the experiences of working sort of for a client at the time. And then I realized I didn't really enjoy that so much. About that time, I had an opportunity, became aware of a virtual law firm. And I joined a predecessor to Fisher Broyles. It was called something else at the time. And it was a different way of practicing law inside of that environment. Um, we were very new, and it was very different as far as um, how we operated and how we were structured. I uh, enjoyed the time there, spent eight years there, the last four of which I was the Atlanta managing partner. And then a couple years ago, I went over to Taylor English, uh, an Atlanta law firm. That's a traditional law firm, but I'm starting up and running their remote attorney practice, which essentially is layering a virtual firm on top of a traditional firm. And it has a little bit of complexity and a little bit of getting used to for, for many attorneys, but I personally think it's a great environment to work in as a lawyer, and it's completely different than what a traditional law firm might be like. In what ways is it different from the traditional traditional law so firm? The remote attorneys definitely operate sort of on their own. Uh, our folks are in a number of different states around the country, and most of them tend to work from home. And, and they tend to operate in a, in a remote capacity by using technology, whether it's using VOIP phones or it's utilizing our uh, online portal and communicating with other attorneys through other technology methods. And, and so it's a kind of a different way of communicating as opposed to just going and knocking on somebody's door down, down the hallway. And it takes an individual who has a bit of an entrepreneur in them because they are kind of on their own at times. Now, they're part of our firm, and we, we bring them into our practice groups, and they participate in all of our meetings. But usually it's done through uh, video conferencing and things like that through the technology. But they often might be the only Taylor English attorney in Los Angeles, for example. So we try to make sure that they feel welcome and they're part of our our firm, and we're going to grow our offices in those other areas. But the way we're doing it is we're not incurring the fixed expenses that traditional law firms have. Instead, what we're looking at is trying to gather the revenue in those cities first before incurring any fixed real estate costs or people salary costs. Got it. Lawrence, you have some questions? Yes, I do, Ralph. <laughs> so <laughs> why don't you ask them? Okay. okay. 
So, David, Zach, and uh, Chris, you know, you all were, you know, very accomplished in your legal careers before you decided to uh, take the path less taken. And so, I guess, uh, kind of getting towards something that David was referring to, the downward mobility of uh, compensation as he's evolved in his career, you know, uh, were there regrets along the way? You know, just, oh my gosh, what the heck did I just do to myself that, uh, that you all had some misgivings when you first started down that path? Why don't we, uh, why don't we start with Zach? I remember people used to ask me, is there anything about the law firm that you miss? And I said, well, every other Friday. <laughs> what was on Fridays? A paycheck. <laughs> Plus, every other Friday, we also used to have that free lunch. And those two things I missed quite a bit when I started and went out on my own. What you have to sort of expect and you need to sort of plan for this in a way that I probably didn't is you probably will take less when you start initially. But that should be followed up in pretty short order by making more. And it might not be making more money, but you should at least be able to justify your life and be able to answer that question very easily that, no, there's, there's nothing I miss about the law firm because my life and my career have been more rewarding since. Hey, Chris, same question. I think I agree with Zach. Um, probably the biggest uh, moment you have is when you realize you go out on your own um, or in our world, you go to a, a virtual model or a remote attorney model. And the compensation system in our models uh, all the virtual firms and our firm has very have very similar comp models, which require you to bring business in. So you have to bill hours to clients, and you have to collect that. And you might bring work in that other people do, but at the end of the day, a lot of it relies on you individually. And so a lot of times, myself and others are used to work being fed to you by the partners at a big firm. Or if you're in-house, then you have the business people giving you work, so you're getting paid for that. But when you go out on your own like this in a virtual model, you have to be the one responsible for the most part for how you get paid. So there is definitely that, you know, oh, what did I do moment sort of in those first couple of months where you're hoping the clients will come and, and you're networking and you're doing a lot of business development, but perhaps that paycheck isn't there like it once was every Friday or every other Friday, depending on who you work for. Um, so that was probably the biggest thing for, for me. And David, you must have had some freak out moments along the way. <laughs> Yeah, so you alluded to uh, what I mentioned in the panel about downward mobility in terms of going from a walk to Lipton salary to a federal prosecutor salary to a blogger salary. Uh, I do think that a big part of the non-traditional path is just being willing to take on risk, which lawyers in some ways are paid to do in terms of take it on, evaluate it for their clients. But on the other hand, lawyers can be very risk averse. And so it can be scary to leave a stable and often lucrative profession like the law to go off and do something else. Uh, so I think that people who do take the road not taken uh, need to uh, have the courage of their convictions. Right. So obviously in any career, part of the reward is financial and often the most important part is not, right? And you, you, we all need to choose a career that is fulfilling to us in ways beyond p paying the rent. So in your panel, I'm sure you got a chance to talk about other careers. I mean, each of yours is, is uh, pretty unusual in, in the ways that you've described them. What are some of the other non-traditional roles that uh, law school uh, graduates and former lawyers uh, are finding themselves in today? 
So we talked about a whole range of um, firms introducing sort of different roles from legal technologists to uh, sort of work allocation managers. I think they're called a different, they're called that in the UK, but it's basically someone who looks at um, associates workload and thinks, right, they haven't done a load of corporate work or real estate work. And they apply that and they make sure that those associates are getting on that sort of work. There are also uh, roles such as legal project management positions, and they, you know, pretty much do what it says on the tin. They project manage a piece of work and what I'm seeing when I talk to law firms which is a lot they really want to kind of boast about these roles they want to show them off Uh, they mention them in interviews they mention them in award submissions because it shows that they're working more smartly and it shows that they're getting their client you know the best work for basically the cheapest price other other thoughts from the panel Right. So I think some of the ones that came up, legal operations, which doesn't necessarily even require a legal background, but very often does. Roles in litigation finance. I can't remember who it was who mentioned a law firm having an ambassador to litigation funders. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I think, think, you know, this kind of goes back to what Chris has talked about. The world is changing. There are new models available. and, And with that, you know, have come new jobs. I think even you know, last year at Legal Week when Casey Flaherty, J.O.M. and uh, and David Cambry had kind of come in to Baker McKenzie as this, this star-powered trio, and none of them was going to technically be a lawyer at the firm. They were all in supporting roles, but that was one of the big stories last year. Right. It, it was a, a really big story, and you're quite right. The way the world is changing and, and the way legal service, the model for delivering legal service is changing, the, the model will require different people who are not themselves acting as lawyers, but for whom legal training may be very uh, valuable. So Zach, uh, during, during your, uh, your panel discussion, you mentioned uh, lawyer stake and the value of hazing. And you brought it up in a way that, uh, you know, parts of your career as a lawyer prepared you for this journey into a non-traditional uh, career. And so I just want to op- open that up as a question for the whole panel. Like, in what ways did your background in law, your law school education, prepare you for the next steps that you were going to take? Lawyer stink and, uh, and hazeability. So I, I think as, uh, hazing is, is just the way humans work. We don't want to accept you unless you're ready to make an investment. And sometimes the easiest way to figure that out is, are you willing to stick around till 2 a.m. in the morning on some assignment where you're not even necessarily getting work? You're just on hand to make sure that if you're required, we've got a lawyer there. I, I thought that it was pointless at the time. And what I realized years later after being in those situations is all the firm wanted to see is, are you buying in? Are, are you ready to be one of us? And I, but I think the ability to be a little bit hazable, that hazeability that I discussed, is really critical in the second part of your career. I don't think... The, the law firms that work with me today don't want to look back and look at my deal sheet or look at how many corporate deals I was on or what hours did I bill. But it is in- incredibly important to them that I did those deals, that I did work with them, and that I was hazable to a certain extent. I'll, I'll save lawyers stink. I want to hear some other thoughts on hazeability from these guys, but we can get back to lawyers stink after. Yeah, David, you mentioned the stamp of approval. You brought that up, just a, a series of characteristics that lawyers tend to have. Yeah, I think uh, Zach's point about hazing is a good one because when the hazing is done, you're a member of the fraternity or sorority. And I think in some ways that is true of the world of law. Uh, After you've gotten your uh, ticket punched by a big firm, uh, even if you go off and do something else, you can always say, well, I'm a former lawyer at Firm X. And it gives you more credibility, whether you're a legal journalist, whether you're a legal recruiter, whether you're the person behind a legal startup. uh, You know what it's like to have been in the trenches. You know what it's like to have billed 2,700 hours 
hours. You know what it's like to have had a difficult or demanding client. And I think uh, to the extent that lawyers can be a clannish group, to say that you have been there uh, really adds a lot. I agree with these guys. I think having the uh, traditional big firm experience on your resume just kind of gives you that stamp of approval, gives you some validity in a lot of people's eyes that, okay, you you managed to make it through. Uh, You seem to probably learn something as a result of doing that. You were probably trained pretty well. So therefore, I trust you as a lawyer. And, and in, I'm obviously still a practicing attorney. The folks that I'm hiring are practicing attorneys. I hire former big firm practicing attorneys. That's one of the, the first things I look at on a resume often is, okay, have they, do they have that experience? Because I know if they have, they probably were trained pretty well. They're doing sophisticated legal work. And I can trust them. Again, when, when you're working in a remote capacity, you don't always have the ability to maybe, you know, have someone keep an eye on what you're doing. So you really have to trust folks who are working in a remote capacity that they know what they're doing on that secured lending transaction or that M&A deal or that litigation matter. And so by having that X number of years at, at big firm, okay, they probably do know what they're doing. And it's just kind of, you still have to talk to them. You still have to interview them. You still have to do what you normally do to vet those folks. But at the end of the day, it gives you a little level of comfort. And I would assume from a client perspective, when they're hiring attorneys, similarly, it gives them sort of a, okay, they probably know what they're doing because maybe I had some experience with that firm in the past. And, uh, you know, Chris used to work at Troutman Sanders. And, well, I know the guys at Troutman Sanders and they're pretty good. So he's probably pretty good. I'll hire him. I would just add also the panel discussed kind of the additional uh, knowledge that you can bring as a lawyer and things that they can gain in terms of skill sets. And I think what we're talking about is the base level of this sort of, you know, verified legal knowledge that you've got from a, you know, pretty much world-class institutions and working in amazing law firms. Clients know that that's sort of the bottom line. That's like a given. What they're also looking for is the kind of added value and they want lawyers to be their trusted advisors in a range of topics. So they want people, they want lawyers to actually be a bit more creative these days. They don't just want someone who's a really good deal maker. They want someone with emotional intelligence. They want someone who knows their way around the internet. And Zach made a really good point about the importance of social media and how how useful that is as a tool. And there are so many other kind of skills that you can add at any point in your career. So let's turn to a slightly different subject, which is your thoughts given your careers and and your examination of this question that would uh, constitute advice to law students or people mid-career as lawyers who are contemplating going into a different kind of career than the practice of law? Well, one of the attributes I think that you need to have as a young lawyer and and even as a a lawyer of middle age or really of any age, you, you need to always be learning. You need to take advantage of opportunities. You need to search out things you don't know about and learn about them, whether that's social media. One of the things that I think lawyers need to do a better job of educating themselves on is entrepreneurship, salesmanship. Learn how to be more than just a technician. Learn how to also sell that skill that you have. Because I see so many recruits in in what I do that don't have a book of business. And, and the, they may have gotten forced out at their current firm because they don't have a book of business or perhaps their book of business has declined and they don't really know how to get some of those clients back. And at that point, unfortunately, they may not be employable in our model because of the way we're structured. And I think that's what I would really have the young folks um, and really anybody, any lawyer of any age do is 
focus on always learning and focus specifically on learning entrepreneurship uh, and salesmanship. I just think that's so important. And it's a skill that's lacking in, in too many attorneys that, that I see. And I, it's totally accessible also. The great thing, of the, the, I guess the stress of today's work atmosphere is that if you're not constantly learning, you, you are going to be made obsolete. But the nice thing is it's completely accessible. YouTube, Coursera, the internet, it is very possible today to learn new skills. I mean, everyone should be reading. If you're not reading specifically, you should be listening to Audible. Um, You can be on social media learning new things. No one has an excuse today of, well, I don't know how to do that. If you don't know how to do that, put it on YouTube, how to sell, and you will instantly come up with excellent videos that can, self-improvement should be a part of every, uh, every attorney's diet. Kind of echoing what Chris was saying about business development uh, and salesmanship, I think one thing that's important, and I say this now as somebody who is in a sales business as a recruiter, is you want to have confidence in the product that you're selling. And so what I do urge many lawyers to do is try to become an expert in something. Try to find some area of specialization or expertise where you can really be the go-to person. You can be the thought leader. You can be the person who says, that type of deal, that type of litigation, I've handled that many times. Uh, Law is still very much about relationships, and so it is important to be friends with a GC, what have you. But in many other cases, uh, when a GC has a problem, they're going to say, well, sure, you're my friend and all, but have you ever handled a problem just like this? And if you're their friend and you've handled a problem just like this, and maybe you've handled that problem 10 times, you're going to get the engagement. All right. I have one last question for everybody before we close it out here. So uh, knowing what you know now, all the lessons that you've learned, would you do it again? David? Yes. Zach? Yes. Okay. Chris? I would, absolutely. Rose, would you uh, host this panel again? (laughs) I would, and I would also definitely not be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Ralph? Would you co-host this episode again? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Of course I would. I love this. Hey, Zach, it took you a while to answer that question. were Were you thinking back to the should I have gone to law school at all? Is that what was on your mind? Yes. Uh, Absolutely. And I think that like many of my generation, I went to law school on the basis of good grades and a good LSAT score. And I don't think that's a good reason enough to do it. It's not that it's a bad career. It's a great career if it's what you really want to do. But today you can, uh, you know, I could have taken the $150,000 I spent on on a law school education and probably invested in myself first and probably gotten to where I am today without having done it. It's it's a lot of hindsight is twenty twenty though, right. and I'm sure that my I'm sure that my law degree and my time at Schulte probably has opened up many more doors than I would like to admit. Right. So it, it's hard it's hard to look back and say that I wouldn't do it over again. Right. It'll be interesting for you to check in, all of you, to check in on what you think about this as the years go by, and, and what you think about the value of 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 your time in law school. There are a lot of people who are very successful in the world, who never were lawyers, went to law school. Steve Brill, who we just did a podcast with that went up today, is in that category. Dan Pink uh, is a law school graduate and, and never practiced law. And, and I think most people think that the training does help you in, in your life as, as you go along. But at any rate, thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing the panel. Thank you for being on the podcast today because one thing you did was demonstrate for anyone who's presently in law school or in a mid-career and wondering whether they've got the right career for themselves in terms of law, you've helped them validate that there are other things they could do if that law thing doesn't work out. So, well, thank you so much. We've come to the end of the time we have for this episode. We appreciate you so much spending time with us. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. 
If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us on Apple or Google or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And for now, I'm Ralph Baxter with Lawrence Coletti for On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.